welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. It's a blessing to be with you. Um, if you would, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3. We've been working our way through the book of Genesis verse by verse, and in chapter 3 we have witnessed the fall of mankind into sin and rebellion. This chapter should read as one of the saddest moments in human history, because it recounts the very first human sins. And these first human sins become the fountainhead or the foundation of all human evil that will follow. Every evil deed committed by humans throughout history finds its birth in the heart of man in Genesis 3. Even the most vile evil deed, the crucifixion of the Son of God, found its birth in the heart of man in this chapter. And so it should read as one of the saddest moments in human history. But as I shared with you last week, as I studied the remainder of Genesis 3, I was overwhelmed by the glorious grace of God throughout this chapter. Last time we focused on verses 8 through 13 and the glorious grace of God in the face of human rebellion. In the midst of Adam and Eve's bold-faced rebellion of God, when they reached out and took of the tree and ate of the one thing that God had forbidden, in the midst of that rebellion and in the fall, God walks in the garden and approaches man. He didn't have to do that, but he chooses to walk in the garden and approach man. When Adam and Eve then run from God and hide from him, we read that God doesn't give up on them, but instead calls to the man in hiding, giving him the opportunity for repentance. And when Adam doesn't repent, God confronts Adam and Eve's brokenness, giving them both more opportunities for repentance. The glorious grace of God is on display in Genesis 3. And my hope this morning is to continue focusing on this theme through verses 14 through 19. In these verses we will see that the glorious grace of God is on display even though it's veiled by a curse or in the midst of curses and judgment. Let's read Genesis 3 verses 14 through 19 together. Keep in mind that... Adam and Eve have been tempted. They have fallen into sin. God has began a conversation with them and has questioned them about what they have done, seeking for repentance. And this is where we pick up the story. God has spoken to Adam and to Eve. And now God turns to the serpent and says this in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. She shall, sorry, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, God said this, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children." Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam God said, 
Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to bless our time this morning. Heavenly Father, thank You for this church. Thank You for each one who is here today. I pray as we gather around Your Word that You would convict us, Lord, where we are falling away from You. That You would show us how we are loving the, the good gifts more than the One who gave us all things. Father, I pray that where we are hurting, where there are wounds and there are pain, that You would bring healing today. That we would have courage to continue on in the faith. And not to become weary in this life, weary in well-doing, but instead to continue on courageously. Lord, would you give um, joy to those who are discouraged? Would you fill us, Lord, with the, um, with the hope that you are going to restore all things for your glory and for our good? Would you do this for, for your name's sake today? In Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we studied God's glorious grace towards man, the man and the woman in the moment of the rebellion. But something interesting, but there's something interesting that God doesn't do. He doesn't call out to the serpent who initiated the temptation. God does not approach the serpent with questions or give him the opportunity for repentance. Instead, after questioning the man and the woman, showing them grace in verses 8 through 13, God immediately turns to the serpent and curses it. Several weeks ago, we identified the serpent who tempts Eve in the garden as a created animal that was controlled by Satan to deceive Eve. So this is a created animal. God created this animal, but it was controlled by Satan for the purpose of deceiving Eve. It makes the most sense that the serpent was an animal that God created because Genesis 3 verse 1 says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, implying that the serpent which spoke to Eve was in fact a created beast of the field. But as we saw, Scripture progressively reveals that there is more going on behind the scenes and reveals the true identity of the tempter in Genesis 3 as Satan, the enemy or the adversary of God's people. One such passage in Scripture that points this out is Revelation 12, verse 9. It identifies Satan as the great dragon and says, "...that ancient serpent." who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. It's really one verse that identifies the adversary of God's people. And for this reason, I suggest that the best identification of the serpent in Genesis 3 is a created animal that is controlled by Satan. With this identification, we begin to see more clearly what is happening in verses 14 and 15. God speaks directly to a created animal, a serpent that was designed to glorify God by serving man. God speaks directly to this created animal, 
and curses the animal, the verse says, above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. There were three designations given for land creatures in the creation account. Three different categories, you could say, that land animals were put in. They were called livestock, beasts of the field, and creeping things. Apparently, livestock and beasts of the field were larger animals, while creeping things referred to creatures that were more like the insects. As we saw before, the serpent was classified as one of the beasts of the field. This is Genesis 3, verse 1, and we just read. And the serpent, the snake, was the most crafty or cunning of all the beasts in the field. In some ways, this snake was an exalted animal. So in the curse on the, ser- on the serpent, we see that the snake was brought down from his exalted position amongst the beasts of the field and made to slither on the ground more like the creeping things, more like insects. It was brought down. We are never told what the serpent looked like before it was cursed. But it makes sense that the serpent was more noble in his physical features before the curse. And theologians have speculated based on other passages and Satan being called the great dragon and all of this. They speculate that it possibly had the ability to walk on legs or even the ability to fly. And that speculation we just don't know. We cannot know for sure what the serpent looked like before the curse, but our thoughts should lean toward an exalted, noble, and intelligent animal that would have been attractive to Adam and Eve. There, would have not, there wouldn't have been this natural instinct to flinch back as you see it two inches from your hand. It's just that wasn't there. But now, here in the curse on the serpent, it is brought down to the dust of the ground more like one of the lower creeping things. In verse 15, God moves from cursing the serpent's physical appearance to cursing its relationship with mankind, saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. On the surface, this is a curse of enduring hostility between humanity, the the woman's offspring, and snakes, the serpent's offspring. From now on, humans will be going about their business and snakes will strike and bite humans from hidden places. Snakes then will be going about their business and humans will see them and for some reason will have an instinct to naturally want to kill it. I realize there is a modern push to allow snakes to live side by side with humans. After all, they do keep the rodent population down, which is a good thing. But for for most of human history, when snakes and humans interacted with one another in close proximity, often one of them was going to die. There has been abiding enmity between snakes and humans. So there does seem to be a curse placed on the relationship between humans and just the animal of of a snake in Genesis 3. But when you read the entire scriptures from beginning to end, you begin to realize there is more going on in this passage than just hostility between humans and snakes. As we've seen, the serpent in the garden was not just a created animal that went rogue. 
The serpent in the garden was a creature controlled by Satan who is a fallen angel and the enemy of God's people, the adversary. God is speaking directly to the snake in the garden, and God is speaking to a creature. But as we saw a couple weeks ago in Isaiah and in Ezekiel, sometimes God rebukes earthly creatures, but at the same time is rebuking the satanic power behind the flesh and blood rebellion. So God is speaking to a creature, but He is in fact speaking past the creature to the satanic power behind it. In Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel 28, which we've seen previously, we've studied it previously, human kings are being rebuked by God for their wickedness. But in the language of the passage, it becomes clear that God is speaking past the men of flesh and blood and is rebuking Satan the one who is pulling the strings. God speaks past the human puppets, these human kings, and God rebukes Satan, who is the puppet master over that situation. I suggest to you that this is also what is happening here in Genesis 3, verse 15. God is speaking past the flesh and blood animal and is rebuking Satan, who is ultimately responsible for the temptation of Eve. God is speaking future judgment on Satan. And this is not a new concept. 250 years before the birth of Christ, Jewish scholars were translating the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek. And when they translated Genesis 3.15, they translated this verse in such a way that makes it clear they understood it to be a reference to the promised anointed one, the promised Messiah who would have victory over the serpent, over the snake. In verse 15, at the end of verse 15, we read, He shall bruise your head. And when the Jewish translators looked at this verse in the Hebrew, they had an option. They had the option, because there's two possibilities, they had the option of saying, he shall bruise your head, or they could have said, it shall bruise your head. He shall bruise your head means a person, a single individual will bruise the one who is present in the garden. It shall bruise your head just means that the offspring, humanity in general, shall have animosity towards snakes. But those Jewish men, 250 years before the birth of Christ, they saw this as a a prophetic word about the Anointed One. And they translated this. Before the birth of Jesus, they translated this, He shall bruise your head. The translators obviously didn't know anything about Jesus. He had not been born yet. But they did know the promises of God and interpreted this passage as a reference to a Savior, to a individual, a person. And within the first 200 years of the church, so in the first 200 years after Christ's death and resurrection, pastors began proclaiming Genesis 3.15 as the first gospel message. The first good news from God that the offspring of the woman would one day conquer the serpent, the original tempter and adversary of God's people. 
So in Genesis 3.15, we, we do see that there will be enmity between offspring. There's this hint of the, the enmity and possibly even just the, the spiritual battle between God's people, humanity, and the snake, Satan. There is this, this spiritual battle that's hinted at, this enmity. But then in the last phrase in verse 15, there seems to be a shift from speaking about the offspring of the woman in general to now speaking of one specific offspring, one specific individual that would come. And there also seems to be a shift from speaking of the offspring or those of Satan who are going to do battle with humanity. There seems to be a shift back to saying that the one offspring of the woman will do battle with the one snake from the garden, the one that was in the garden. He can't be speaking of the physical snake anymore because snakes live and die just like every other created being. He's speaking of the one who is in the garden would remain and abide until that day when he would do battle with the one offspring of the woman who is to come. God is speaking past the snake, past the creature, and proclaims to Satan that he, the one offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head, and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. When you combine this prophetic language in Genesis with the New Testament passages like Romans 16, verse 20, which speaks of God crushing Satan under the feet of those who are saved by Jesus, then it becomes clear that the good news of a coming Savior who would do battle with the snake was first proclaimed all the way back in Genesis 3.15. Looking a little more closely at this passage, the Hebrew word translated bruise or in this, in this verse means to strike or to land a harsh blow. And it can refer to multiple strikes or blows. It's not necessarily one strike only. The mental picture you should have is of a man stomping his bare foot on the head of a snake to kill it, but in the process of trying to kill this snake, he receives a venomous bite or multiple bites to his foot from the snake. This is the mental picture that we should get from this passage. And this prophecy of battle of this battle between the man and the snake was fulfilled through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God the Son came into the world and was born of a woman, the virgin woman, Mary. And as soon as Jesus is born, Satan attempts to strike Jesus with the venom of death through Herod. Herod, a puppet ruler of Satan's, heard of the birth of Jesus, this, this new king, and he did not like the sound of that. And so he attempts to murder Jesus, but he doesn't know where the baby is. So what does he do? He goes to the town of Bethlehem, and he murders every child under the age of two in the attempt to kill this one promised king. But Jesus escapes with his parents. 
Satan then attempts to destroy Jesus through temptation. We've spoken about Jesus' temptations in the wilderness, and Satan is attempting to strike at him during these temptations through the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. Satan only wanted Jesus to fail at one of these, and then he would have struck him. But Jesus is able in his power and by the will of God to continue unharmed. He did not fall into sin. During Jesus' ministry, the serpent struck at Jesus, attempting to kill him through the Jews. The Jews had rejected Jesus as their Messiah, and sometimes they picked up stones to kill him. Once they led him to the edge of a cliff to push him off, and throughout his ministry, the Jews plotted together how, to, how they could kill him. But none of these attempts to kill Jesus succeeded because it was not yet the Father's will for the offspring of the woman to die. But when the time was right and all righteousness had been fulfilled by this one offspring, then and only then was Satan allowed, was Satan permitted to control Judas, who betrayed Jesus, leading to the death of Jesus on the cross. The serpent would have surely rejoiced at this because his bite had finally hit its mark. It had finally hit Jesus. And his venom of death had sunk into Jesus. Jesus was dead, lying in the ground, in the grave. But early on the third day, on Sunday, the stone was rolled away and Christ rose victorious from the grave. And in an instant, it became apparent that Jesus' righteous life, His death on the cross, and His resurrection were three strikes of the heel to Satan's head. The venom of death was defeated by Jesus, and the serpent's power over God's people was crushed through his life, his death, and the resurrection. Romans 8 verse 1 tells us that there is therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation, which means no legal requirement of eternally dying with Satan in the lake of fire, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Satan is the accuser of God's people. One verse says that night and day he goes before the Father accusing the brothers, the church, the family of God of their sins, saying to God, you can only be a righteous judge if you condemn them to the eternal lake of fire. That's what the accuser does. He's the prosecuting attorney. He is saying guilty, guilty, guilty. And if you don't agree with me, you are unrighteous judge. And the truth is that Satan is speaking words of truth. Before Christ's coming, it would have been unrighteous for any man not to spend eternity in hell. But when Christ came, and when He paid the price for us, 
when the Son of God died on the cross, then he can now say with honesty and with truthfulness and with righteousness in defense of his people, he can say there is now no condemnation for those who are in me. I paid the price. And now Satan's power, the sting of death, and the guilt and the shame of our sinfulness has been crushed by Christ. Jesus has won the victory over Satan for his people. Sin and death have lost their sting, and the ultimate defeat of Satan is assured. It's as good as done, and it will be experienced on the day of judgment. For now, Satan is permitted to prowl about as a roaring lion, seeking those whom he can devour. But he is a wounded beast, and his doom is assured by God. At the end of the letter of Romans, Paul encourages all believers to remain faithful in this life, reminding them of the ultimate victory over Satan that we will share with Jesus when he returns. Paul says that our victory is so shared with him that he can say these words. He says that God, the God of peace, will soon crush Satan under your feet. We're not crushing Satan in our power. He's referencing to our shared victory in Christ and what He accomplished. And He's pointing to the ultimate, final completion of the victory on the day of judgment. God will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's Romans 16, verse 20. On the day of judgment, Satan will be crushed, not wounded, not resisted, not rebuked. Satan will be crushed. He will be given the due consequences of his rebellion against God, and he will be thrown into the eternal lake of fire. You can see Revelations 20, verse 10, for that promise. The hint of this good news from God is first whispered all the way back in Genesis 3, verse 15. The grace of God is on display from the very beginning, even as he curses a snake. The enemy of God's people is rebuked and condemned to failure and eternal death, and God's people are promised a Savior who would die for them, giving them life. This is spoken all the way back in the beginning. And this theme of grace, even in the midst of judgment, continues in verses 16 through 19. God now, after He curses the snake, He curses the snake. He now looks on the woman who has just been deceived and who ate from the forbidden tree. And God shows her grace. As we saw last week, she deserved to die the moment she ate of the tree. She deserves to be separated from God and condemned to eternal punishment. But God shows grace. And instead of wrath, He speaks these words to the fallen woman who is now filling with evil desires and thoughts. He speaks these words in in verse 16. God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
When you stop and realize that these words have impacted women for over 6,000 years, you begin to realize how serious these consequences have been. And you may be tempted to think, does the punishment really fit the crime? But as we've seen, one offense against the eternal, divine, creator of the universe deserves eternal punishment. This is what the scripture teaches. God's worth cannot be measured. Therefore, the punishment for a single offense against him cannot, cannot be measured. This means that the punishment that would have fit the crime would have been instant, eternal death for Eve, which would have meant that none of us would have ever lived. We all would have died in Eve. So no matter what God says after her sin, the fact that the conversation is still continuing with Eve means that God is extending grace. A life mixed with pain is not the deserved punishment for Eve. And in fact, the difficulties that God is bringing into Eve's life here in this passage, these difficulties are designed to draw her as a woman back to God. Let's look at these two trials placed on Eve. First, God says in verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. You may wonder why God focuses in on childbearing, but when you think back to the creation account, the reason becomes clear. God had given the woman two primary responsibilities in the garden. First, she was commanded by God along with the man to be fruitful and multiply. Literally, they were commanded by God to have children. Second, she was created by God to be Adam's helper, to be at his side as they together ruled over creation. We talked about being one flesh previously and the joy of that. These were the two activities on this earth that would provide the woman the greatest satisfaction joy, and fulfillment because these were the things that God created her for. She was most satisfied when she lived according to the way that God created her for the glory of God. That was what was most satisfying. But because of her fall into sin, because of the evil desires that were now flooding into Eve's heart, she would now be tempted to turn to these two most satisfying things. She'd want to turn toward them and make them her gods. She would be tempted to bow down and worship childbearing, having children, being a mother, and the joys of that. And she would be tempted to worship her relationship with her husband, allowing it to satisfy her, apart from God even. The heart of the sinner is an idol factory, pumping out one idol after another. We will turn and worship whatever our heart believes will bring us the greatest joy or happiness. That is the condition of the human heart after the fall. 
And knowing the twisted nature of the human heart, God proclaims to Eve that childbearing will now be mixed with pain. And this trial is not just focused on the hours of labor, of when you're actually in the act of bringing a child into the world. No, in reality, the Hebrew words imply that being a mother from beginning to end will be mixed with pain. It's not just talking about a few hours. It's talking about an enduring difficulty, an enduring trial. From the moment a teenage woman becomes to the age of bearing children till the time they die, there will be both physical and emotional pain related to this whole area of having children. There is physical pain prior to conception, in conception, during pregnancy, in the act of delivering a child, in recovery, and even while feeding your child. There is also emotional pain during all these times. And as the child grows older, there is the increased possibility for emotional pain as your child then gets hurt, is sick, or rebels against you. Many mothers have experienced the emotional pain of having an adult child reject you, turning their back on you. I suggest that all these things, all of these troubles and trials are wrapped up in what God is declaring to Eve. She will experience pain in the realm of childbearing. But I suggest to you that this is all by the grace of God. This is God's grace towards the woman. Maybe you're not able to receive this truth today. Maybe your wounds are too fresh to receive these words right now, but the truth is that the brokenness of childbearing is intended to lead women to cast themselves upon God who is the only one who can satisfy. Children cannot save you from your sins. A happy home and ten loving, healthy children will not eternally save your soul. They cannot. If there was no pain in childbearing, many women might continue in this life, joyful and happy till the end of their days, without a thought to the God they had offended and their eternal judgment that awaited them. Because that is the overwhelming joy and power of having children. There is great joy. And God created women to have great satisfaction in this. But by the grace of God, He mixed the good thing He created. Childbearing, which is a good thing. He mixed it with pain. He mingled joy with pain so that childbearing could not satisfy the aching heart of broken, sinful women. Women who pursued childbearing as the idol of their heart, as their God, will find themselves frustrated and consumed by unfulfilled longing. The pain of childbearing was meant to drive you to the God who can 
satisfy. Who can heal all wounds and comfort every heart. That is God's grace in mixing pain in the joys of childbearing. Eve was also created by God to be Adam's helper. This was not the role of a slave, but instead Eve was equal in worth to Adam. She was his best friend. They ruled creation and worked the garden together side by side. Yes, Adam was the head of the relationship and designed differently. He was different. He was designed to lead, protect, and provide. But prior to the fall, this would have always been for the benefit and joy of the woman. The woman would have always rejoiced in the way that Adam led her. But now, because Eve's heart is on the run from God, God mixes the joys of marriage with the pain of strained relationships so that Eve would never be fully satisfied with Adam. God says to Eve, Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Where Eve had previously rejoiced to follow Adam and be his helper, now Eve would desire to be contrary, or her desire would be contrary to Adam. Some translations choose another possible translation, so I'm going to get a little technical here to answer the objection in this passage. Some translators have chosen a different word than than contrary to. They would say, your desire will be for your husband, or your desire will be toward your husband. Some, Some translations do say this. This is a possible translation. But the meaning of this verse is confusing if these words are used. This Because this verse is not a statement saying that women are just going to love following their own husbands. If that was the case, then why all the biblical commands for wives to joyfully submit to their own sinful, dirty, rotten Husbands, Why all these commands? Because the scriptures assume and it knows that this is going to be a difficult thing to do. That's why we have the commands. So Genesis 3.16 is describing the conflict that will emerge in the marriage union. Even Eve was once happy to follow the leadership of her husband. Now she will desire to rule him. This becomes even more clear when you look in the very next chapter in Genesis 4, verse 7. Genesis 4, 7, it says here the exact uh, same word. It uses it in a very similar way as well. Cain is filled with anger toward his younger brother Abel, and God warns Cain saying this. Verse 7 in chapter 4, God says to Cain, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is, okay, this is where the word comes in, its desire, sin's desire is contrary to you. Or you could translate it, sin's desire is for you. Or sin's desire is toward you. But you must rule over it. In the ESV it's translated, sin's desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it. And I do believe that is the the best 
meaning that we can get from these verses. And in this sentence, in, ver- in chapter 4, verse 7, written only a few verses later, and in a similar context, it is very clear that sin does not have good intentions for Cain. Sin's desire is to master Cain. Its desire is to rule over Cain. And in a similar way, Eve will now desire to rule over her husband, to master him, to fix him, to change him, to be the way she wants him to be. But this will ultimately, as many wives have experienced, this will ultimately lead to great frustration. God says that contrary to Eve's natural desire now, the man will rule over her. This does not mean that women have never been able to get the upper hand in this sinful battle between the sexes. But the truth is that the vast majority of history has been a sorrowful tale of the ungodly subjugation and oppression of women. That has been human history. And even when women were given every right and power over men that their hearts desired, even when this has happened in history, even when nothing was withheld from them, Ultimately, women found that that power and rule over men was just as unsatisfying. It was empty. It did not fill the longing of their soul. Because no human, and I suggest that the reason is because no human relationship, no child, no husband, no secret lover, no lesbian affair, no human relationship that you can imagine whatsoever will fill the God-sized hole in the hearts of women. All these things will fall to the ground as utter disappointments because only the Creator God can satisfy the longing of your soul. Only He can make you whole. And this is the grace of God toward women in these verses. God is drawing women to Himself by showing them that life apart from Him is ultimately unsatisfying, empty, and will leave you with unfulfilled longing. Finally, in verse 17, God turns now to Adam. Adam held the greatest responsibility for allowing his family to rebel against God. We see that by how the scriptures repeatedly place the blame on Adam, saying that Adam fell, Adam rebelled, Adam rejected his God. God says to Adam in verse 17, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it, because of this, Cursed or cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Turmoil has entered into the family unit. Adam had considered the words of Eve, his wife, as more worthy, as more valuable than the words of God. Adam had failed to lead his family into obedience. Now, because of this, Adam would experience much of the pain of Eve's fallen desires. 
Because now she would not, she would no longer naturally want to follow him. Her joy in being his helper was diminished. And Adam would now experience the desire, the sinful desire, to rule harshly over his wife. He would be tempted to treat her more like one of the beasts of the field, as a subject in his kingdom, rather than as a human being made in the image of God, of equal worth before the Father, his companion and his friend for life. Adam's heart was now filling with evil desires, and one of his evil desires may have been to isolate himself from God, to run from God, and then to live for his work in the soil. Because after all, his work in the soil would still have, in his mind, would have still have satisfied him, would have given him a purpose for life. For this reason and in his grace toward the first of many rebellious men, God curses the good thing that God created. God curses the ground. God curses the earth, which would have previously been a joy to Adam, which would have filled his days with fully satisfying work. Now the work of Adam's hand would be filled with pain. To farm the land would require buckets of sweat. I mean, if you've been outside in the summertime just mowing your lawn even, I'm not talking about plowing a field. I'm just saying mowing a lawn, you come inside and you, your wife's like, where'd you find the, the swimming pool to jump in? Like, you're soaked. That's what he's talking about here. The sweat would be required for sometimes what seemed like the simplest of tasks outside. Also, these unknown things to Adam, these things he'd never seen before, called thorns and thistles would now jump out of the ground, would just, would just multiply where he had planted good seeds. It's like, I don't even know where these things came from. And all his days, Adam would work in the dirt until finally, at the end of his days, Adam would then return to the dirt that he was made of. He would die. What we've seen here is that Adam's joy in work has been diminished. No effort of his mind or hands would fully satisfy him. His family unit would take hard work to maintain as well. No human relationship would fully satisfy him either. And last, his life was going to be cut short. He would begin to age. His youth and strength would fade, and eventually Adam and Eve would both die. Their life would end. At first glance, the trials that God decrees over the woman and the man may seem like spiteful actions of a God who is looking to get a pound of flesh from the creatures who have disobeyed Him. Some have read these passages, and that is the, what they have read from these passages, what they have taken away from these passages. But when we stop and we look at the fact that these trials, these tribulations, this pain placed on Adam and Eve were preceded by the first gospel message. The gospel came first before it. This curse on the serpent that is the message of a coming Savior. When we look at this, 
And when we consider that each one of the trials spoken over mankind is designed to give mankind an awareness of the consequences of sin and awaken them to their desperate need of a Savior who will relieve them from their pain, when we recognize this, then we begin to see that the glorious grace of God towards man is on display even in the midst of troubles and trials. These trials are not the wrath of God poured out in full measure. That will be accomplished in the lake of fire for all those who are still in rebellion. That is the wrath of God poured out in full. And this is also not just the spiteful behavior of a God who is angry. Instead, these troubles and trials are designed to plant in the heart of man the longing for a Savior, for one who would rescue them from their sins and its consequences. In these trials, God is in fact drawing His people so that they might turn to Him and be saved from the eternal punishment of the rebellion, all to the praise of His glorious grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word and how it is true, how we can lean on it, come to it, how we can be healed by the Spirit through the Word, how You bring peace and joy to Your people. Lord, I pray that this has been accomplished in many hearts this morning. I pray that even in this difficult passage where it seems like it's nothing but judgment and curses, that we as your people would look deeply and would drink deeply from your word and realize that the fact that we are breathing is your grace and the fact that this life is not a place where we can just enjoy and just have a great time and can go, with, go through it without a single thought of a need for someone who can break the curse. I thank you for that, Father. That you have not left us to our own devices, but instead that you have placed in this world obstacles and trials that will cause us, that are designed to cause us to run to you, the only one who can save, the only one who can bring true fulfillment. I pray for our church, that you continue to grow us in our love for you and our joy for you. Lord, may we be a church that is praising the, the glories of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.